Win at Work and Life with Nikki Bush is the podcast where you and I explore what it means to win at both work and life. Increasingly, you get to choose how to create a life of meaning and self-expression that includes both your work and life outside the office with your family. In this episode, I'll be talking to psychologist Claire Newton about the secret S word that no one wants to talk about, and that's suicide. Claire Newton is a psychologist, speaker, trainer, and coach with clients all over the world. She is a consultant to corporates and is a specialist in interpersonal skills and emotional intelligence. Claire is probably one of the most organized people I know, and she loves to wear hats. Just go and look at her website. Of all the psychologists I work with, I have had the most frank and direct conversations about suicide with Claire Newton, who not only counsels suicidal clients, but has had her own real life experience with suicide in her inner circle. She brings both her professional and lived experience to the table. Welcome Claire, and thank you for joining the Win at Work and Life community today. Thank you, Nikki. It's really great to be here. Well, Claire, I'm just so pleased you accepted this interview because I know that suicide is a topic that's close to your heart. And something that we've discussed is that we need to put suicide on the table as a point of conversation. It's not that um, you know everybody is going to consider suicide in their lives, but we do. It's part of the fabric of society that we do have people who do get desperate from time to time. So let's kick off with um, you know it's COVID. And is COVID exacerbating these risk factors that impact on people who are perhaps having suicidal thoughts? And the answer to that is yes. The the pandemic is absolutely exacerbating the known risk factors. And if I talk to you about them now, it's almost self-explanatory that you will just begin to hear how the pandemic is just adding to what we already know are high-risk factors. And the first factor is hopelessness. And I talk about hopelessness because as a psychologist, when our clients mention that, you know, it's all hopeless, nothing's going to change, nothing is going to get better, then alarm bells go off in our head and we immediately start to check that out. What, What exactly do they mean by that? So hopelessness is a key key risk factor. And you know with the pandemic that a lot of people are feeling really hopeless. They don't know if their businesses are going to pick up again. They don't know if they're going to be able to get a job again. Um, They don't know, you know, what the future is going to look Mm, like. If they can pay school fees, uh, you know, it's down to the granular detail of life. And um, yeah, I, you know, I, I totally get that. And I, you've, you've written this amazing article that uh, all our listeners can access on clairenewton.co.za. Um, and it's called the Suicide Sensitivity. And it is such a brilliant read. And in that article where you t- talk about loss of hope, you talk about things like no hope for the future, no hope that things are going to ever change, no hope that I'll be well or stable again, no hope that I will ever be able to 
to meet my goals in life. It might be something about relationships or careers or even not feeling like we're accomplishing anything because right now a lot of people are treading water and uh, feeling out of control because the control is not resting only in our hands at the moment. The government is so, you know, um, involved in what is allowed to happen and what isn't. And that that huge sense of lack of control um, leads to feelings of desperation sometimes, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Lack of control is not a high risk factor for suicide, but it is a high risk factor for a deterioration in general mental health. Yeah, so depression, and, desperation, things like that. Yes, Yes. And I'm working with, um, you know, that sort of trying to help people to get a sense of control back again um, is one of the primary things that, that I do. And I actually do have some articles about that on my website that people can look at, circles of control, um, a tool that they can use. But if we come back to risk factors of suicide, uh, mental you know, deterioration in mental health is one of the risk factors. And depression specifically being a mental health disorder that we know is associated with um, being a high risk factor for suicide. Mm. In fact, when I read your article, I picked up that there were two things that most suicides have in common, one being depression and the other being substance abuse, whether it's drugs, alcohol, that they usually go hand in hand very often the substance abuse goes hand in hand. And the reason that the substance abuse is such a problem is because it's the reason why some people will actually go ahead and do something that they've been thinking about. They've been thinking about killing themselves, but they haven't had the um, perhaps the strength or the courage um, to do it. They've, they've had enough inhibition to stop them. But once they're drunk or intoxicated, all those inhibitions go away. Mm. And then they start to do things that they wouldn't have done had they been sober. And so substance abuse is a real problem um, yeah. when it comes to suicide. Yeah. You also mentioned things like loneliness. And that's been something with COVID that's yes. come up for people is having to deal with their own loneliness and isolation. Yes. It's been a huge factor. Loneliness and isolation has been a huge, huge factor in COVID. And it's one of the factors um, why, you know, people commit suicide. It's that idea that I, I don't fit in, I don't belong, I've got nobody to talk to, I've got nobody who cares. And that not having somebody who cares, even if they're on the other side of the world, is a huge big factor when it comes to it comes to suicide, and we know that um, those seasonal holidays, Christmas, for example, when families generally come together, whether they are Christian and celebrate the religious holiday, or whether they just celebrate a, a holiday as a season, um, we do know that suicide rates tend to go up um, in those holiday times. Mm. Yeah. What about? Um triggers like um, bad memories from something that's happened before that they can't let go of, uh, those sorts of things. Is that, that one of the causes for suicide? Trauma? It's not, a, it's not a high risk factor, but what you're talking about in many ways could be PTSD. 
post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so some life or death situation like a car accident, um, a rape or a home invasion, um, you know, watching somebody else die, you being involved in a life and death situation, those horrific memories um, stay with people who have P PTSD. And PTSD is one of the one of the known risk factors for suicide. Mm. 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 So um, academic pressure is another thing that I think we're seeing, especially with teens and university students. Um, and you think of those matrics, particularly in the pandemic, who had to suddenly do school online, were not surrounded by their peers, didn't have the rites of passage that would come with that last year of school. You know, a lot of loss and grief. Um, and, and teens, particularly young men, um, are more at risk than anybody else, are they not, in terms of suicide? Sadly, yes, youth suicide is increasing at the highest rate, not just because of COVID, but um, long before COVID, youth suicide was increasing at the highest rate. And what we know is that men um, are more likely to be successful in committing suicide than women, mostly because men choose far more drastic methods if they're wanting to kill themselves guns and you know car accidents and that kind of thing hanging whereas women will tend to use things like um, taking an overdose of drugs where they're more likely you know to be able to be saved um, and and so on so academic pressure is definitely one of the the risk factors what are the behavioral clues that one should look out for? Uh, what could be the telltale signs that somebody is considering um, committing suicide? Some people keep it secret, don't they? Yes, there will be some people who keep it secret. They absolutely don't want anybody else to know that this is what they are intending to do. And they will successfully kill themselves uh, without having left any clue at all. But most people will, in fact, leave some sort of clues, not necessarily deliberately, but just because of, you know, the way that they're thinking, and the way they're feeling. And so when it comes to behavior, there are things to look out for. You know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking as a parent, for example, you were talking about high stress of academics, plus it would probably be a whole lot of different causes that come together to, to push a young person to be suicidal. Um, but as a parent who lives with a teen, for example, because in adults, you might be in a relationship, maybe you live alone, maybe there's nobody who witnesses your day-to-day -day life. But if you had a child who was, say, preoccupied with very violent television, um, really violent music, um, that sort of thing, would that be something you would it would be a telltale sign for you? It could be. You need to be a bit careful there because so much of the literature and um, video material that teenagers are looking at is, it is very violent and it is around the theme of death. But if you have someone who is preoccupied with death, um, watching movies, reading material, uh, morbid kind of music, that kind of thing, I would be just pricking my ears up yeah. and just taking note of what else is mm. going on. One thing on its own is possibly mm. not an indicator. Yeah. 
Um, but what is what is what else is going on? I would be looking at that. So is is withdrawal uh, social withdrawal quite a telltale sign? Social withdrawal is is often it's a telltale sign of depression. Um, right. One of the symptoms of depression is that they don't want to socialize and here we're talking about people who typically like to socialize Um, okay so that's a behavior change yes a behavior change that they're withdrawing it's a symptom of depression and then I would be looking at that and going okay just how depressed are they other things would be they give away prized possessions those special um little possessions that they have and they're giving them away to friends and family you know you have this have my favorite pocket knife, for example, Um, you know, I want you just to have it as a gift. They might say, I want you to have it to remember me by. And when they're giving away that kind of thing, again, alarm bells should be going off. Why would they be wanting you to remember me? Um, You know, that kind of thing. Previous suicide attempts, definitely. If there's been a previous suicide attempt, you want to keep watching um, and seeing, you know, what kind of mental health state is that person in. Someone's attempted suicide once, they are possibly going to attempt it again if there hasn't been any kind of treatment or, or intervention in the meantime. They could also go and start collecting the means to kill themselves. So buying guns, purchasing knives, um, getting rope, pills, accumulating pills, that kind of thing. Uh, and if, if you see that happening, you definitely um, want to be very alarmed by that. You definitely want to be intervening um, mm. at that point. Um, I'm going back to the teenage thing, and we're not talking only about teen suicide here, of course, but uh, cutting is something that uh, teens can do is would that be a, a telltale sign so self-harm can be a telltale sign but there are a lot of teenagers who are cutting um, and they are not actually intending to commit suicide at all there's mm. you know a lot of reasons for self-harm but the fact that you've got a teen who is harming themselves is a is a warning sign that something needs to happen. There needs to be some intervention, some kind of treatment. And I would be seeking professional help. You know, I'd be encouraging those parents to get some sort of professional help or the friends. It might be the friends who know um, that their friend is doing it. And Mm. I would be saying, get some professional help. It's not necessarily an indicator of suicide, but it could be. Okay, so there's two other behavioral clues which are worth um, watching out for, and that is risky behavior, that the person is suddenly doing all sorts of risky things, driving erratically, um, maybe jumping from high places, running into traffic, that kind of thing, where they, you know, are likely to get themselves seriously hurt or, or killed. And if that's happening, you want to be asking yourself why. What is this all about? And again, I would be looking at that and then, you know, alarm bells would be going off and some kind of intervention uh, needs to happen there. If they are having a lot of accidents, you know, sort of close calls with death um, and there's, you know, more than just one of those, again, that could be something to look out for, this risky kind of behaviour. They actually are, um, you know, it's really dangerous. Mm, mm. So... I went through your list and I thought of somebody 
who I thought was in a bit of a desperate situation. And I used it a bit like a checklist because you've been talking about the fact that there's usually a cluster of clues to look for, not just one on its own. And it was an interesting exercise to go tick, tick, cross, 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 tick, tick, and to then count them up and, and make a quick visual assessment of the list to say, well, how much of a risk is this person at? Um, so thank you for, for sharing that list online and we'll, we'll give you a website address again at the end. But there are also verbal clues to listen out for. We've handled the behavioral clues, what you can see, but now what about what you hear? Really, really important to be listening for those. And the kinds of things that you want to be listening for are when people talk about there's no point in carrying on. It's hopeless. They're saying those sorts of things. I just want to end it. Um, they might say something like, life is just not worth living anymore. When you hear those sorts of things, not just, you know, a one-off, but you're hearing that kind of thing really spoken heartfelt, then, you know, if I have a client who says that kind of thing to me, it's all hopeless. You know, there's no point. Um, everyone will be better off if I was dead. As soon as I hear a client saying that, I will actually ask them straight out, what do you mean by that? In other words, I really get them to engage and start talking about it. So those are the sorts of verbal clues. And when you hear them, check it out. Do you mean that? Well, this is where we come unstuck, though, there because we're all far too scared to go there. We actually don't want to ask that person. We don't even want to know that they're actually thinking about killing themselves. Let's face it. We actually don't want to have to deal with that. So we, we tend to stuff this under the carpet and ignore it. And yes. what's very interesting about your what to do list is it's quite, I don't want to say confrontational, but it actually actually is in a way because you are taking that person on and you are you are acknowledging verbally consciously that I I really pick up that you're in a bad space and and as you've just said you ask that person directly are you thinking of killing yourself so these are this is this is advice that you are giving the man in the street that we are empowered if we see enough clues to actually confront this person head on. Yes. And I don't refer to it as confrontational at all, but it's direct. It's open. It's clear. It's very, very direct. You're not taking the person on as in challenging them and confronting them. It's not an argument. It's coming from a place of care coming up from a place of concern. You've noticed one or two things, they've said one or two things, and then you just ask them directly. And you don't use euphemisms. So you don't beat around the bush. You literally say, are you thinking of killing yourself? Is that what you're trying to say? You don't say, you know, um, something like, do you want to harm yourself? Um, you know, would you rather be in heaven? Uh, you know, those sort of euphemisms, don't use them. Just be absolutely direct. Would you rather be dead? Are you thinking of killing yourself? Are you thinking of committing suicide? Now, people are really scared because they think what's going to happen is I'm going to put in that idea into somebody's head. But I can promise you, 
if the idea is not in their head, you're saying it isn't going to put it in their head. And if the idea is in their head, you are opening it up now to talk about it. And that's probably the one thing that is going to stop this whole suicide um, ideation. Suicide ideation is the term that psychologists use to mean thoughts of suicide. And just bringing it out into the open and talking about it and allowing the other person to talk about it, and that's important, letting the other person Mm. talk about it, is probably going to um, help to stop that suicide. Because the the suicidal person will then think somebody actually cares they're willing to talk to me about it. They're willing to listen. And in a way, it's been like that um, bottled up thing. And now it's a bit of a pressure release. And it's a bit of a, whew. So we give or we're providing a gap, a space for reconsideration maybe to take a breath, to maybe get a bit of perspective. And as you say, to know that somebody actually cared enough to ask. So what happens, Claire, if they turn around to you and they say yes? You know, your worst nightmare, this person turns around and says, yes, actually, (laughs) I am. And I don't want you to think of it as the worst nightmare. The worst nightmare is when they don't tell you. That's the worst nightmare. So reframe that. If somebody is actually able to say yes to you. That's what I'm thinking of doing. Of course, it's going to be scary. Of course, you're going to be shocked and alarmed and um, all of those sorts of things. But they have confided in you something that's really, really important, and it gives you the opportunity now to help. So what do you do? Ask them three questions. So they've said, yes, I am thinking of killing myself. The three questions you ask are, how? How are you thinking of killing yourself? So what is the means? In other words, are they going to hang themselves? Are they going to shoot themselves? Have they got pills? You're going to ask, when are you planning on killing yourself? Because you want a time frame. Is it today? Is it next month? And you want to ask where? And if they can answer all three of those questions, how, when, and where, then you know that they have really, really planned this. And then you actually don't let them out of your sight. Um, As a psychologist, I wouldn't then let them leave my consulting room and just, you know, sort of take themselves home because they may not even get home. What you would then be doing is, if you're a friend or a family member, is you stay with them on what we would call a suicide watch. You stay with them 24 hours, and that means that you don't go to sleep because while you're sleeping, the person who is suicidal could then do the very thing that they have planned to do. Um, Of course, you're going to need some sort of shift to help you. You can't stay up 24 hours and expect to stay awake. Um, So you bring in your friends and so on, and you you literally create a suicide watch um, to keep that person safe. Get them some professional help. Uh, phone a psychologist, um, go to a crisis center, that kind of thing, uh, so that that person has somebody to talk to. And if necessary, get them hospitalized, even against their will. What you want to do is you want to get them the help that they need so that you can prevent the suicide. They're going to need some counseling and so on after that. 
because nothing has changed in their lives, but you want to prevent them killing themselves to give you, you know, so they've got a chance um, to get the help that they need. And what actually happens is most cases, once somebody has received some help and they've had some counseling and so on, they actually no longer want to kill themselves. Most people don't want to be dead. They want to be out of that terrible situation in which they find themselves. Because it's actually deep emotional pain, isn't it? It's really, really deep. It's really, really deep. And, you know, you hear people saying, oh, it's the coward's way out and it's so selfish and so on. And actually, from the perspective of the person who wants to commit suicide, it's the exact opposite. Um, They are not selfish in their opinion. They're actually... Other people are going to be better off without them. Other people might be financially better off because there's going to be some sort of, you know, life insurance payout. Um, Other people are going to be better off because you're not around and you're not a burden. Um, So they're not selfish. In their mind, they are actually being selfless. And as you know, it takes huge courage to actually kill yourself. It's not a coward's way out, but they are so absolutely desperate and probably so depressed that their thinking is not the same as you and I, um, you know, who who are generally mentally, you know, well and healthy. They have a a mental illness and Mm. and that is what is driving them. They cannot Mm. see what you can see. Mm. And that's why it's not helpful at all to say to them, um, oh, don't worry, it'll all get better. And you've got so much to live for. And, you know, that is not helpful at all. Yeah. And just snap out of it. Yeah. Because they actually can't, which is why they're in this situation. And they're in such a deep hole that the perspective is not there and there's no light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So (laughs) what else should we not say? (laughs) Don't ever say, well, go ahead and do it then. And I hear that quite a lot. People get so angry and say, oh, it's just a call for attention. Um, you know, so I just told them, we'll just go ahead and do it. I, I, I called their bluff. And yes, it might be a call for attention. But instead of just dismissing them with that phrase of, oh, it's just they just want attention, what we should be saying is, oh, my word. How come this person is in such a bad place that they have to go to these drastic measures to get attention? How come they don't know a better way to ask for attention? Mm. And we should be asking ourselves, what can I do to give that person this attention they need? So don't ever call their bluff. Don't ever say, you know, something like, oh, it's just the easy option. It's the coward's way out. Um, Don't say to them, oh, don't be selfish. Um, for all the reasons that I've already said before, they don't believe they're being selfish um, or a coward. And when you come with that attitude of, oh, go ahead and do it anyway, what you're telling them is that they shouldn't be here, that you don't care. You're giving exactly the message that you don't want to be giving. Mm-hmm. So, Claire, we, you know, we're going through this very challenging time with covid And if anybody's listening to this podcast who is maybe feeling desperate, maybe is in that dark place, what self-help suicide prevention tips do you have for that person? So the first one would be to say to them, reach out 
and ask for help. Recognize that you're in a bad place and just reach out and ask for help. Now, it's not always easy to reach out and ask for help from family and friends. Often it's embarrassing. You say, oh, you know, they don't care. So then reach out to the crisis helplines, the suicide helplines, um, you know, those 24-hour um, telephone lines that are going to be there. There's professionals on the end of the line that will be able to help you. And that will be the first thing that I'm going to say is, is reach out. If you know that you are likely to commit suicide because that's what you're thinking of, actually consciously set up what we what we call a, a support group and that's four or five people that you know that you could call if things really got desperate um, those could be family members could be friends could be colleagues at work and include in that list of four or five people a 24-hour helpline because obviously you can't expect a, a family member or a friend or even your psychologist to be available 24 7 and um, but if you've got a number of people you can call, including a 24-hour helpline, you're always going to get someone at the end of the line. So that will be the first thing. The second thing is don't make it easy for yourself to commit suicide. Mm. In other words, get rid of all the means. Um, if you've got an accumulation of medicine, um, pills, that kind of thing, if you don't want to throw it away, then give it to somebody else to look after for you. So get it out of the house. Um, guns, knives, that type of thing, um, give them to somebody else to look after. Um, have them put away somewhere where you can't access them. Um, so, yeah, don't make it easy for yourself. Ask somebody to come and stay with you. If, you know, it's around loneliness and you're afraid what's going to happen in those early hours of the morning, actually ask somebody to come and stay with you um, so that you've got some company and be quite open about it. Tell that person, you know, what your fears are, um, how you're feeling and ask them to, you know, to get you help, uh, that kind of thing. Um, pray. If you are at all religious, reach out for your faith, you know, whatever your faith and beliefs are, um, pray, meditate. If you are someone who has some spiritual um, beliefs, that can give you a lot of strength and a lot of calm. Turn to creative outlets, write, write letters, write to yourself, write to other people, um, draw, um, paint, you know, whatever it is, it's, it's not about creating a beautiful work of art. It's just about that cathartic experience. And writing can be incredibly cathartic. Just a very, very simple tip um, or a little exercise that I want to share now is, and anyone can do it, is to write how you're feeling by writing sentences. I feel and then you add the emotion. I feel angry. I feel angry. I feel, and you just keep writing, just like we all did at school when we got into trouble and we had to write 100 lines. <laughs> That's what you do. And you just say, I feel, and you write the emotion. And then as you're writing, as the emotions change, and they will possibly change, you just write the next one. I feel angry. I feel angry. I feel angry. I feel frustrated. I feel frustrated. I feel sad. I feel sad. I feel left out. And it's just I feel and you write the emotion and you just keep writing and you just keep writing until 
that kind of cathartic effect, you feel better and you want to stop. And it's such a simple little exercise, but it works incredibly well. So that would be, a, a you know, something that people can do. Mm, what I hear you saying is find an outlet to keep your thoughts and your emotions flowing and not bottling up whether it's yes. to find somebody to talk to, whether it's somebody on the end of a phone, on a helpline like the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, for example, or the Suicide Hotline or Lifeline or any of those organizations, just knowing somebody is hearing you is a big thing. And then when you talk about the writing, to me, it's about you almost hearing yourself that yes. you are, you are, it, it's just getting it out of your head because when it's trapped in your head and your heart, it's going round in circles. And when you're the only one hearing it and it's not coming out, it, it, it's almost like that, that spring, that coil that gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And I don't know, maybe it feels like suffocation. Uh, maybe it feels like all sorts of things. Um, but, Really, the, the minute you, you start naming, name it to tame it is what psychologists say, don't they? If you can name it, you can tame it. There's that possibility of a bit more perspective and that moment of pause before you take the next action, whatever that action might be. And, and to actually build in that pause for ourselves is so important, even on a normal day, even for people who are listening who are not desperate. We all have moments where we feel frustrated and sad and angry and all of those things. And rather than acting it out by kicking the dog or shouting at your partner or smacking your child, if you could do this yourself anyway, on a normal day, you would actually, what I call, shake your sillies out and feel a whole lot more in control of how you are feeling, uh, which is where we started this conversation, uh, is helping people to feel a little bit more in control and to gain more perspective so that they don't um, do desperate things. And of course, suicide is a very desperate message um, about what's going on inside. Before we close off, Claire, should there be anybody who's listening to this podcast who has had a family member take their life? What are some of the self-help coping tips that you could share with them? When you have been left behind when somebody has committed suicide. It's an unbelievably difficult place to be. It's like no other death because when there's been a suicide, it is usually wrapped up with lots of guilt, lots of if only I'd seen, if only I'd done this or if only I hadn't done that. Um, so often what I find is that the people left behind are racked with guilt and questions and so on. And what I'm going to say is that be compassionate with yourself. It may have been that that person did not want you to know. They didn't leave any clues no behavioral clues, no verbal clues. You had no idea um, that it was going to happen. And the choice that that person has made is the choice that they have made for themselves. 
So be compassionate. Get yourself some professional help. Um, again, I'm going to say, you know, talk to somebody, that outlet of, of, of talking, but to someone who's a professional who can help you to work through this extremely difficult place that you're going to find yourself. Yeah. So surrounding yourself with friends and family who you can talk to would also be important. I know when my husband died, he was murdered. Um, he didn't die. He was murdered. And it's a little bit like what we're talking about here. Somebody's died, but they've died at their own hand. They haven't died from a disease. They haven't died from, um, you know, it's, it's, it's different. Um, and I remember so many people saying that they'd spoken to a psychologist because, you know, lots of people are affected when somebody commit suicide, not just the immediate family, but it ricochets. If it's a young person, it ricochets through the school or through the university community. If it's an older person, say a mom or a dad, I believe you me, every parent the same age, family the same age is going, well, if it can happen to them, it could happen to us, you know? So, so I think we're reminded of, of our own mortality, but so often I heard somebody say, you know, I was speaking to a psychologist and they asked me if you had a strong family support network. And when I said you did, the psychologist said, she's going to be absolutely fine. So it, it, it is important that as friends and family that we are there for each other should a suicide take place within our inner circle. Yes, um, absolutely. And, and for the, you know, you spoke about that sort of ripple effect as it goes out. And it's really important for the community not to lay blame, not to point fingers um, at the family you know, that they weren't a good enough family or a good enough partner or whatever it is. These, these situations are so incredibly complex that you can't just say it was one reason um, that caused that person to kill themselves. And for the, you know, the, ex the extended family and community not to be pointing fingers, but just to be reaching out to that family with compassion. I think about this situation, uh, you know, as you say that, because no one can truly understand um, what somebody's been through to get to that point. And as you say, we shouldn't point fingers. And I always say, we all have opinions about things like, would I have an abortion? And you could say, I absolutely wouldn't based on the following reasons until you're in that situation yourself. Um, would you let your child have an abortion? Well, you actually can have all the opinions in the world until it happens to you. And would I get divorced if my husband had an affair? You know, you've got such an opinion until it happens to you. And people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones because nobody is experiencing what you're experiencing and nobody fully understands what happened and what went on. But for all of those left behind, it's actually really important that we're allowed to speak about the person who's passed, the person who's died. It's an important part of the processing, isn't it? Yes, it is. 
when, you know, when there's a suicide or a death of any, um, you know, for whatever reason, you're going to go into a, a period of grief and bereavement. You're going to go into that place of mourning. And to be able to speak about the person is really important. To speak about their good qualities as well as their bad. Um, you know, to focus on on one or the other is is not helpful. Nobody is all bad and nobody is all good. They are both. And to be able to hold that that balance and speak about the good and the bad and speak about that person is really important. Don't pretend that nothing has happened. It has happened, and it's real. And just on that point, Nikki. Um, very often when it comes to young children, the parents, the family will say, oh, they're too small, they're too young, they won't understand. You mean if we tell them what's happened to their brother, sister, a friend, etc.? Yeah, father, whatever it might yeah. be. Um, and I can tell you there are so many of my own clients that I have seen as adults of 40 or 50 or whatever the case might be saying, you know, when I was five, my father died and nobody told me what was happening. Um, so-and-so died, nobody, they wouldn't let me go to the funeral. They just kept saying, oh, you know, she's too young. And that has had an impact on them for the rest of their adult life. Nobody is too young to be told that somebody has died. But what you tell them and how you tell it to them is obviously going to be important. They don't need to know graphic details about a suicide. But to be able to say that, um, you know, that person has died, that they actually killed themselves because they were so sad or unhappy or whatever. Um, and then to bring in the spiritual beliefs of, you know, whatever that family believes in, whether somebody's gone to heaven or if it's reincarnation or, you know, to bring in those religious beliefs and to talk about it. But don't make the mistake of saying that child is too young. I mean, if they sort of under two, um, there's going to be an impact there that, child will pick up body language and so on, but there's not a lot of explanation. But, you know, a toddler um, of three and four is not too little to understand. Mm. No, you're absolutely right. And this is part of closure. Otherwise, you leave this open-ended thing and there's an expectation when there's no closure that that person might come back or something else is going to happen there needs to be a definitive end like a full stop at the end of a sentence that this person is not coming back and it can take a while for that to sink in it really can I, I can say that from my own experience from the loss of my husband that it can really feel like an absolute full stop in your life um but sometimes it takes a while. It took me a full seven days before it was really real because the numbness and the shock was so big um, that it really was only after the funeral that, that it was so real that he wasn't coming back. And even then, uh, you know, there are still times when you think that person is going to walk back into the room. Um, and then anniversaries, they always trigger stuff. Um, and I think that it's, it's important that we're aware that cellular memory is a powerful thing. It exists. And sometimes it's 
the day before the anniversary of a death. Sometimes it's on the day. I've even had, because I've had three years now of being a widow, where I felt nothing the day before, nothing on the day. But two days after the anniversary, I was hit by a ton of bricks. Felt like I'd been hit by a truck out of nowhere. And when you talk about be compassionate with yourself and give yourself time to grieve, it's such an important thing because grief is not over in a day. It's not over in a week. You have to learn to live without that person. And you've got a hole in your, in your heart, the shape of that person. That's how I like to describe it. And that hole in your heart will be there forever because that, that person left an impact on your life. And you don't want that hole to go away, but you want the pain around the hole to dissipate. And that does take time uh, to go away. And, and it's really about absorbing the loss, not getting over the loss. And I think that's an interesting phraseology. You know, people say like, you know, get over it. You're not going to get over it, but you do learn to live with it and you do learn to absorb it. And time does make it easier, but so does talking about the person and talking about your own pain and, and what you've lost. Um, so Claire, I think you've just given us so much and there is this really amazing, amazing article on your website that I, I really would recommend that our listeners go and, and read and download. Uh, you've included suicide trends and statistics, the myths and the misconceptions, which I think are very interesting reading. Um, you know, so much to take in. This is a massive, massive topic. We really only scratched the tip of the iceberg. As you started out by saying it's a complex thing. Uh, people don't take their lives for one reason and one reason only. It's a multi multiple, there are multiple causes, multiple factors that come into play. But thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your insights and your invaluable advice. How can our listeners contact you and where can they download your detailed and practical suicide sensitivity article? So, on my website, which is my name, www.clairenewton.co.za, and that's spelled C-L-A-I-R-E-N-E-W-T-O-N. -E and under free resources, they will find lots of articles. They will find the suicide sensitivity article there. They'll also find one on grief and bereavement, which we've just been talking about, um, called Survive Your Sorrow. And... They can find all my contact details under contact me on my website. Claire, thank you, thank you, thank you again. And to our listeners, I hope this podcast about suicide has been of assistance to you or will help you with someone you love. Do send through your comments, questions and topic suggestions to info at nickybush.com. Please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues to empower them to win at work and life too.